Hello, hello. Welcome to Tuckered Out with me, Ami Tucker. Guys, I am beyond excited about today's guest. I've been wanting to talk to him since I started the pod a few years ago. So when I ran into him this year at one of his book events, I gently reminded him about that time 20 years ago when I was his production assistant on a very small film set in Austin, Texas, and that maybe he owed me one. He was more than happy to oblige. You may know him from TV shows such as House, Designated Survivor and Sunnyside, and of course his films, Held in Kumar and The Namesake. Cal Penn is an American actor, author, academic lecturer, and former White House staff member in the Obama administration. His new memoir, You Can't Be Serious, is out, and it's a fantastic read, guys. I hardly read books, and I read this book in two days. And we talk about it all and then some. There was not enough time in the interview to cover ground. So, Cal, let's do a part two whenever you're ready. Guys, I really, really hope you enjoy my interview with Cal Pep. I didn't think you would remember me. I really did it. I mean, because like, no, it's been twenty I get years. It, I get it. I get like, it. No, it's over been twenty time, years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although, I mean, like for for folks who don't know, I it, you will probably mention this in the in the intro, I'm sure. But um, we spent uh, three months, two and a half months in three Austin, months. Uh, three months in Austin, Texas, back in the day, working on a not great uh, movie together that was a lot of fun to do. So. You know, we we enjoyed ourselves, and and also just it was one of the first South Asian American films that were that was out there. Um, yeah, and uh, and so the 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 point of all that was like, you know, it was an it was an intense, fun uh, few months. Of course, I remember you. You you were the OG of kind of the the brown the, the South Asians entering into the film industry. Let's be honest. I'm going to tell you my first impression. You might not remember, vice versa. That's okay. I was just a PA, mm-hmm. but. My first impression of you was, man, uh, this guy is a serious actor. He doesn't really want to party with us because you never drank with us. You were really serious right. on that set. I don't know if you remember. I, and you, and, and yeah. I kind of now reading your book, I kind of feel a little bit like I know what phase you're kind of going through. Well, and let, I, me, let me interrupt. I, I had a huge crush on you, by the way. You did? Huge. Yes. Okay. Like, I did not, like, I was uh, dating that guy we won't mention. Yeah. And um, he hated me going to set because he knew. And I was like, and I was like, he's not flirting back with me. And I'm really trying. Oh, that's funny. And I just wanted yeah. to let you know. I just, yeah, yeah. I, there was a love there. Yeah. Now it's brother to sisterly. But yeah, yeah first- of course. Let me tell you the, the phase I was in had started right around probably the, the year before that movie and continued, if my timing is right, till today. There was around that time, there was a buddy of mine who was having a 21st birthday on uh, on like a Wednesday night or something. And the following morning, I had an audition for that sitcom Freaks and Geeks. And it was like the first time that I was auditioning for Allison Jones, the casting director. And it was Judd Apatow before he had fully blown up into who Judd Apatow is today. But I knew this was like a big opportunity. It was just a couple of lines in in this, this script. 
And I kind of thought, well, it's just a few lines. I got this. And so I went out for my buddy's 21st birthday, got shit-faced. With this is Vegas? All my friends. No, Vegas no, one? this was LA. Okay. This was not, this had nothing to do, I wasn't working. That's why I was able to go out on a Wednesday night. Right. And that Thursday morning, I, the audition was okay. I mean, it was young enough that it wasn't a massive hangover or anything. But I knew that I was really slow and not fast with improv because I had gone out to drink the night before. And I obviously didn't get a callback. And whether the callback was because of what I look like or because of my performance, who knows? But right. I was so disappointed in myself that I gave anyone an excuse to not hire me that had nothing to do with what was out of my control. Meaning right. back in those days, right, almost everything was a stereotype. This was an audition that wasn't stereotypical that I had a shot at and I sabotaged it myself. And so from that point on, I was like, if you are ever lucky enough to get an audition or to book a job, you do not need to be drinking. You can drink any other time throughout the year, you out of work actor. But when right. you are on set, you are serious. You love the craft of what you do. If you're not serious, find another line of work. So I remember that our time together was right when that started. So if you do, I definitely remember going out and grabbing drinks on, on weekends. Right. But usually a, only a Saturday, not a Sunday because we were shooting Monday and not a Friday because we were usually shooting late enough that I wanted a full Saturday to rehearse in the morning. But but the other times, the like post-work, hey, we wrapped early kind of thing, absolutely not. I was very serious. I used to go home and rehearse. And, and that's why, because I just didn't want to oh, sabotage anything I else. I tried. I was and I still very, try to do that today. I still try to abide by that's the, amazing. Uh, well, I was very aggressively trying to hit on you. And, <laughs> well, now and I know now, that part of the story. So thank and you. Uh, I just want to let you know that it's a, you know love comes in different forms, mm -hmm. and so and is reciprocated in different forms. Yeah, by the way. of yeah. course. I don't know it was so weird. I saw you. I was like, that's this feels like home. I know it's really <laughs> fucked up to say because we hung up for three months and never saw you again. Yeah. But some some comfort there. The other thing, I you know all of us have had these crazy experiences in life. We're all in our 40s. <laughs> yeah. I love the fact that you remembered so much detail. Now, I don't know if this is because uh, like names of people mm -hmm. and and I don't know if you've had people like, you know, mom and dad and friends kind of being like, remember this? Remember Because I can't remember what happened fucking last week. Yeah. And so like writing this book, I mean, to remember all these moments and memories, yeah. how special is that? It was incredible. I, I sort of jokingly said, so a lot of these stories I've shared with close friends over the years, usually over a beer or two, or, you know, they're like fun, engaging stories. And I, right. I wrote the first draft of the first third of the book. And a lot of it is like what middle school and high school was like, what some of the auntie and uncle nonsense was like when you're an aspiring actor and it's a room so full good. of doctors, right? And I remember turning in the first draft to my editor and she goes, hey, so in the sample that you sent me before you started writing, stuff was really funny. And this is very dark. Is there a reason why it's so dark? And I read it back over again. I was like, oh, shit, this is super dark because you're as an as an actor. I mean, most artists do this where like you're recounting something. You're in the moment again. And I was right. like, oh, yeah, this is different. I have to retweak this for the stories that I verbally tell friends because it has a lot of joy and humor in it now that if you're putting yourself back in your 14 year old brain, of course, there's angst and there's anger and there's all that. Of stuff. Course. But that's certainly not how I feel about it now. So going back then and putting in all of the things that that truly are reflective, which as you know, from the end of the book, when I really had the chance to talk to my my parents and my partner and close friends and family, just to fact check everything. And it opened up a whole new wave of, wow, I didn't know that's why you moved to America. I didn't know that's how you actually felt about me when I was a kid who said I wanted to be an actor. You know, it was, it was super special and also just really funny, dude. Like the uncle who I write about, who I remember he had this green Mercedes and he drove, he lived in North Jersey, we were in central Jersey. Uncle right. drove like an hour and a half 
because he got a car phone. Like this right. was back in the day, right? This must have been late 80s. Big, big car phone, massive antenna on the roof of his car, like huge brick of a car phone. Like clueless phone. Yeah, like yeah. Oh, a, no. just, but with a yeah. cord. Clueless yeah, phone, obviously. I think, didn't even have a cord. This was like a corded car phone. And he wanted to show it off. And he, he was like, As he well, should. Of as course he as should. he should. Absolutely you know what, as he should. Jay Hin, whatever. Absolutely Go ahead. as he should. What totally. I loved about it was how unlike my parents' other friends that, that was. So this was a this was an uncle who uh, he and his wife didn't have kids. So they had presumably a bit more disposable income than the aunties right. and uncles who had children. And so he was just super proud of his Mercedes, his his car phone. Like that that's Aww. it, man. He made it. And it was it's so funny to recount that because of all of the wonderful things it it signifies, right? And so even totally. including little silly stories like that, I was like, they're silly on the one hand, and then on the other hand, it's sort of like not to get too meta about it, but you want benchmarks of the American dream or people who sacrificed and flipped things in one generation. That's all there too, you know? So it was a lot of, it was a lot of fun. Uh, totally. I have my, about. and I'm going to give you my take on, yeah. you know, as a, as a reader, you hit so many notes for me. My favorite genre in life overall is coming of age. And I, I think that's what you did. You made a coming of age book for us. Mm-hmm. And that mm. hasn't happened, Thank you, you know, and, and someone else that I've talked to recently, uh, Sajatha Day. Yeah, she's dope. Made the film and, and we became friends and we were talking and you guys have done this in a beautiful way. Anyways, we'll talk, Breakfast Club is my favorite movie and, yeah. and it just, it makes me want to cry because I'm like, this is our story. Yeah, you know, yeah. This is amazing that you were able to put this together. Um, Thank it you. It should be a film. Thank you. And let me just interrupt and tell you that I wrote this book primarily for two sets of people. So it means a lot to me that you said that. One is like the 25-year-old version of the collective us, right? right. The idea that there was, this is not a guidebook or a how-to book by any means, but just the idea that like when I was 25, it would have been cool to read a story for somebody with my similar background who had navigated two industries that we're always told to think we're monoliths that we couldn't get into, right? Hollywood and, and, and government or politics. Right. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was for that. The other reason was that I, I, I'm blessed to have these ridiculous juggling careers in two industries that I love so deeply. And it used to be back in the day that whether it was aunties and uncles who were like, you're only allowed to pick one thing and it better be in the sciences. Or frankly, our guidance counselors who were not South Asian who would say things like, you can't have your cake and eat it too if you want to do two different things. Nowadays, there's this whole generation, especially coming out of COVID, that are like reanalyzing what they want to do in the world. The world is not made up of mutually exclusive choices. You're encouraged to have multiple passions. So like maybe it's the right time to tell my story. So hearing you say that means a lot to me. And I just want to I want to thank you for that. Oh, it's so, huge because so, so. we're the same. We grew up at the same time, same age, same, you know. Okay, let, 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 let's rewind. Okay, Jersey. Right. Let's go back to yeah. growing, growing up yeah, yeah. Cal. Obviously, our parents' immigration story is quite similar. Come here for higher education. Yeah. The professional identities are tied with our ethnic ones. Head down, work hard, don't fuck around, yep. eat darbashak roti, yep. move on, right? That, that's like our, our parents' story. That's move right. on. Like just, you know, don't complain, don't start shit, yep. which we both know, and you mentioned it in your book, and, and I know talking to my parents, our parents had a basis of fear a lot, you know, right. of our, our kids doing well, them doing well, uh, they left everything behind, right? They're, yeah. they're the, they're the OGs. Our parents For are sure. the fucking OGs. Yeah. I love the fact that you grew up with your grandparents mm-hmm. and 
I remember either you in an interview or I don't, I don't know where it was that you love old people. Yeah, I do. Good memory. Is this, is it, did this comes from from the grandparents being with you? Yeah, part of it is definitely the grandparents. It's two probably two sets of experiences. One, my grandparents who, who yeah. when we were kids would tell us all these stories about marching with Gandhiji, and I never like you're eight years old, you don't fully understand that like the story about your grandfather getting beaten by British soldiers and thrown in jail means what it means, right? And then as you get older, you're like, oh, wow, this is uh, the basis of our own American civil rights movement. And I can't believe my grandparents were involved in that. It was a combination of that. And then a lot of my, uh, a lot of the grandparents of my middle school friends, I grew up in a predominantly Jewish town. A lot of the grandparents uh, were Holocaust survivors. And so they also obviously very different than Gandhian freedom fighters in terms of experience. But the, the grace, if that's even the right word to describe this, and bravery through which they told their stories to our generation, 14, 13-year-old kids, I, I can't imagine what they had been through. And so the idea that, that you know, you revere your elders, uh, certainly part of it must be cultural, just for the way that, like, brown folks right. are, are generally raised or the expectation. But it went way beyond that. It went to, like, you know, the, the Holocaust surviving grandparents of my my middle school friends, we often things, think of things that people have sacrificed in order for us to have progress as being so long ago. And right. they're, they're just not that long ago. It's just not that long ago, yeah. which you proved over and over again. No, I love that. And I loved, like you, I went to India a lot. You were in Abad, right? Ahmedabad the whole time? Uh, Mumbai, Ahmedabad and Baroda. Yeah. yeah. The fact that you Sundas, I know I email this to you, but like, yeah. <laughs> that, could you, Gujarati is a whole, we should do a whole separate podcast on Gujarati. I'm going to do sure. like a Gujarati off on yeah, the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The memories of even using the bathroom are still vivid to me as well. So yeah. I, I kind of went to, and when I visited, it was the same situation, yeah. just basic one bedroom apartments. Right. I still have a very deep love for India. I lived there after I got married. My husband and I lived there as expats for three years. Awesome. Wow. And living and working there. Where'd I you live? Do Where for the three years? Sorry to interrupt you. Sorry. So I lived in Bombay that year. And then after I got married, we lived in Delhi for a year and cool. a half. Yeah. And then Bangalore, which I loved. Yeah, yeah. Until you really live and work there like that, like you can't understand. You know, you. I know you've done some stuff there, which I yeah. love your story on that. Point is... So my relationship with India, I still love it. My brother hates it. Everyone has, what is your relationship with India now? Like, is it a love-hate thing with the country, which I feel like a lot of us Indian Americans feel like, mm -hmm. or, or do you feel close to the culture now? It, it's an it's a really interesting thing. So as I talked about in kind of the early chapters of the book, I, I never felt the thing that I think a lot of second generation Basie Americans feel, which is the need to choose between whether you're... Indian or whether you're American. I think part of that was the nature of the town that I grew up in. It was a suburb of New York City. Um, most people, even though, you know, I, yes, there was bullying. Yes, there was racism in, in middle school. But there were also, you know, there was some diversity. Uh, I think I jokingly said it was like white diversity. So it's like people would speak Italian and Polish and, you know, a lot of Jewish kids and all of that. So so there was, but, but the idea that you spoke a different language or ate a different kind of food at home did not signify that you were othered in the way that right. I think a lot of other folks experience when they're growing up. So for me, it was different because the only times I felt or was asked to feel like maybe you're not Indian enough were from other Indians. They were the ones who are like, oh, a career in the arts. We don't do that. We're Indian. Uh, even in college, you know, the kids in the Indian Student Union would be like, you're such a sellout. Oh, I know. Why I'm are you majoring about... in film? You know, Where, so, where's, Geetha, where's Geetha and Ravi right now? Who cares? Dude? I'm over it. <laughs> Uh, but but so my relationship with with actual India uh, was never um, was never called into question in that way because I would I would go and see relatives 
in the summers. Um, I had done a couple of volunteer projects within right. an NGO, and then uh, and then in you know in college probably still visited a bit. But then after college, had the chance to work a little bit there, and then now with streaming platforms. Not to give away the ending of my book, but like I love the creative diversity that streaming platforms have offered around the globe. And so right. the opportunity to go to India periodically, either for projects I'm working on there or to pitch projects to like the Netflix, Hulu's, you know, OTA platforms, all that are, is, is really cool. So, and I'm sorry, I just, I, I should have maybe led with this. One of the other things that I thought was so interesting, like as somebody who is obviously very proudly American, if you talk to other folks who also have you know, they're, they're second generation, their parents were immigrants. You have an interesting relationship with your parents' country of origin, especially if you're bilingual or trilingual, like in our case, and, and you're able to communicate, you're able to understand the culture. So one of the proudest moments for me also in that, in that regard was uh, when President Obama asked me to accompany him on his second uh, state visit to, to India when Prime Minister Modi was hosting him. And having the chance to go with the sitting American president um, and I was out of my White House position at the time. I was working on an, an arts policy committee. So did a little bit of work while I was there, diplomatic kind of work, but otherwise was really just there, you know, and you're sitting with the American delegation. And my dad ha- happened to be in India at the same time visiting his sister. So he, he was, he like was able to join. It was very emotional because it's just, it, to, to borrow the overused phrase, like the unlikely story of being American is so wonderful and and so I don't know I just think I just think it's I think it's great I think uh, but my it's a healthy it seems like a healthy relationship yeah in general yeah, yeah, with, yeah. With, with, with India yeah. how is your guju now saruchek saruche maru gujarati ekdam karab thegu kem suthayu kem maru I'm going to sound like a yeah I don't know just after kids bully gay madu okay just India ma saru hatu. Pachi, Avine, I don't know, but the bully gay and mummy, Net- daddy, Sati, and yeah. Uh, Netflix and Amazon uh, Guju movies. Che. So you can watch huh? them, you can watch them with subtitles. They're actually pretty good. Wrong side, wrong side Raju is a very good Guju movie. I think it's Netflix. St- start there. The other thing we need to do whenever we have time is list the best Guju names like Gumless, Hardik. Hardik. I mean, like our language <laughs> is so beautiful. <laughs> and like so classy. I just love it. And then I just want to make sure your cousin Raghav is okay, the gonorrhea. Totally He's fine. Okay? Thank you. Good? Thank Doing you. good? Okay. I, I just want to make sure. I wish I could have tell him, tell him I say Jeshi Krishna. I will, for sure. And uh, <laughs> I hope he's doing okay. So middle school, you figured out stage, comedy, bringing people together. Yeah. You were also like you mentioned, and I, I was too. And I actually looked through my middle school yearbook yesterday. Like the past three days, I've been going through my own autobiography with you. Mm-hmm. And I just had fucking angry notes about people yeah, the whole time. Yeah. I, w- I didn't like yeah. you mentioned this just a couple minutes ago. I didn't I didn't know. Yeah. I didn't realize that maybe I was angry. Yeah, fucking yeah. A- Ashley would hit me <laughs> on the back of my head. Yeah. Randy Finn, Ben Garber, David Cohen. Yeah. You obviously remember these names. I'm remembering names too. I, I didn't realize until I read that yearbook that that time in my life still bugged me. Mm-hmm. I know you met, kind of mentioned you're over it, mm-hmm. but well, do you think it shaped a little bit about, uh, you know, kind of like the adult cow yeah. in Hollywood and dealing with all the racism and stereotypes? Yeah, I think uh, it's funny, by the way, I had to change their names. Uh, oh, I know. The editor or the the lawyer from Simon and Schuster was like, hey, are those the real names? Th- those aren't the real names, right? Of the kids who bullied you in middle school. I was like, oh no, they're the real names. 
Oh. And she was like, uh, well, I mean, not the names you just read. Oh, right. okay. The original draft. She goes, oh, yeah, no, you need to change their names. I'm like, why? She goes, well, they could... they could Get harassed. They could sue you or they could uh, get, get, get harassed. I was like... Uh, like I, I did? What, I mean, that was my implication, but I was like, what would they sue me for? It's all truthful. Like, yeah, it's just not a good idea. And then I, and one of the reasons I didn't even think to change their names, or I remember when I, uh, when I worked with uh, Ryan Reynolds on on Van Wilder back in the day, we were talking about right. some something bullying related. He was also bullied in in school, and I guess he, uh, I wonder if he still does this. But there were a couple of projects he was telling me when there was like an asshole character, he would name them after a kid who bullied him. So it was just like a little like, Mwah. so, but yeah, I guess I didn't, you know, the first draft of the book, like I'd mentioned, I didn't realize how cathartic it was going to be or how right. it almost felt like, uh, I mean, essentially it's like diary therapy or something. Right. And I was like, oh shit. Or, gonor- or gonorrhea therapy. Or gonorrhea therapy. Yeah. I was like, I didn't realize that was a thing that, uh, that I had to, that I had to get out. So I think it, it probably, you know, affects you to some degree, but that's also like, you know, whenever I've, whenever I've had a shrink, they always ask you about, you know, things when you were a kid I'm like, is that just because I'm giving off like kid middle school trauma vibes? And they're always like, no, that's everybody. Like everyone's formative years are like totally. the things that you remember were the things that maybe had, you know, the angst that you carry around or whatever. I'm not a, I'm not a therapist, so I, I, I want to stop short of offering any therapist advice. But but yeah, of course you remember that kind of stuff. I think the the part of it of, of like g- getting over some of that stuff was also uh, – you know, some of it's petty, like you mentioned, like, uh, you know, you, <laughs> somebody tries to add you on, uh, on Friendster back in the day and oh you're just God, like, what happened to you? Ooh, yeah, dude. Uh, nope. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I mean, have you gone to any reunions and been like, what's up bitches? No, I actually, unfortunately, so, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I, I didn't go to high school in the town that I went to middle school in. I loved high school and, and didn't have the chance to go to a high school reunion because I was working during the reunion so far, but would love to. Okay. Would love to go back, but also I, I really try very hard to not have that chip on my shoulder that I that I think is otherwise a little easy to have. Um, I know, and it's I also think, just Cal, like, I think yeah. we have to chip away at the chip. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it, it takes time. I think no. Yeah, I think it. I mean, for yeah, for me, I like I said, I didn't realize the extent to which yeah. maybe I I had still remembered what those emotions felt like. But it's also you got to move on. It's you're time doing, to you're move doing, on. You're, you're doing okay. It's well, that's certainly that helps. I, I won't lie, but it's also just like there's a there's a part of me that was like I see people and and talk to people who really hold on to that What's childhood trauma stuff. And I'm talking obviously about the folks for whom it could be a choice as opposed to someone who's actually dealing with PTSD kind of stuff. But those right. for whom it could be a choice, you, I'm just sort of like you, you're still letting them win. Also, they were it's 13 also, at the time. It's also like exhausting. They, it's exhausting. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and people do change, right? Uh, yeah. So the hope is obviously that people learn from, from all of that. Gen- generally. Well, you know, Randy, Ben, and David, <laughs> we love you. If you want to come hang out, let us know. Also, by the way, thanks for even, even talking about something like this. Because within our community, mental health stuff, you, it's just like you never talk about it. You know? I don't know why because we're always, all fucked. We're all fucked up in a way. Like we need yeah, all. It's also need just like human nature. Like just human like, nature. Uh, the hella aunties will be like, "You look like you haven't gone to the gym," or you know, parents will be like, "Did you get your annual physical?" But we rarely check in with each other. And like, hey, have you seen a therapist? Maybe do ten sessions. Maybe see you know, see if you need to. Talk and to that's what about we something. can do now, right? right. Yeah, like yeah. with my kids, I will be I'm, now. I can actually help them and yeah. and, lead and guide them. There's no way my, my mom is Hunsa, by the way. I know yeah. you had a Hunsa in your life. So yeah. I was like, what? And we're going to get to uh, Pussy Auntie. 
as, sure. as well. Yeah. Because, I mean, I kind of oddly love her. Yeah. But, yeah, it's so important. And I'm so glad the younger kids uh, are South Asians are, are doing this. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're young, too, though. Yeah. We're yeah. still, no, we're we still in our <clears throat> 40s. That's right. Yeah. I love that you loved high school because that's still tough for a lot of South Asians. Yeah, but yeah. You, found, you kind of found your community. Yep. You were kind of at this point. You you knew at that point you wanted to become an actor, producer. Yeah. You wanted to go into film, I did, which yeah. I think I have to ask you because my biggest, whatever you want to call it, journey in life has been, what do I want to do? What is my career? Yeah. I went to law school, of course, because I didn't have either the gall or the guidance. I don't know what you call it to figure out my true passion, which has mm -hmm. been writing and journalism. And mm -hmm. if I had known... I would have gone to journalism school. Your parents weren't like rejecting the idea, but they weren't totally supportive, right? Yeah. I felt like they were kind of in the middle. Yeah. How did you do it? How did you make the decision to go for it? Because I wish I had done that. The, so there's a, there were a couple of things. So the stuff that was out of my control that I'm very thankful for is the, the uh, town that my high school district was in uh, was made up of five towns with five different public high schools. And each high school was a regular high school for the kids in that town. And it also had a wing for a specialized magnet program. So there was right. one for science, there was one for history and humanities, one for business, uh, and one for the performing arts. Um, and so I happened to get into the one for the performing arts. I auditioned and 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 got in. And without that, I would not have had that pre-professional track of of training while I was in high school, right? And I right. think because it was an honors program and it weighted your GPA nicely. There were some tough conversations to convince my parents to let me go, but I think GPA was probably part of it in addition to, well, okay, he got in. We didn't think he was going to get in. I was allowed to skip a grade in that particular program. So it was, oh, damn. It was one of That's those like things a, that was like, oh, yeah. interesting that he was able to do that. So so that was part of it. And then the other the other part of it, I think, was just like, you know, I, I try to say this with as much respect as possible. This comes up a lot when I, I do a lot of guest lectures at colleges. And inevitably, there will be like a Desi kid who says, hey, I'm a, uh, I, I really want to be a film major, but I don't know how to convince my parents. What do I do? Right. And I'll ask, you know, well, what are you majoring in now? And it's usually engineering or, or something in the sciences. And my answer to that question is always the same. It's like, I don't know your family story enough to actually offer advice, but I can only tell you that the conversations with the community and with the parents about what you want to do for your career and convincing them or doing it anyway and dealing with the blowback way easier than any audition for any casting director or any producer that you will ever have. So if you're not up to the challenge of having that conversation with the parents and doing what you want to do, then just consider that perhaps you don't want to do it enough and you don't have to do it professionally, right? You can, you can do any number of arts careers on the side or over right. the summer or juggle it with whatever career maybe you're maybe not passionate about, but you really lean on for other reasons. And there's no shame to that. So just the difference right. between like making sure that you don't just love the idea of it, but you're willing to deal with the sacrifice related to the execution of that idea is equally important to take the time to, to sort of consider. In my case, yes, I, I was blessed with, like I said, this public high school that offered this program. And right. my parents who after, you know, a, a lot of, uh, I don't want to call it fighting, but it was fighting, heated discussion that every kid yeah. had with their parents ultimately came around and like okay and it, it was funny to see how it dropped from like uh you can't major in theater you have to major in something else but you can take a theater class to okay then i applied to colleges uh 15 colleges half for liberal arts and the other half for theater and film and then i think we were all myself included shocked to see that i got into nyu's tisch school of the arts and ucla and usc and you know 
they the places where you had to audition to get in. And I was like, oh, okay, so these are the top three theater and film schools in Your the world. Your parents were like, oh shit, this is real. I mean, that was the thing for all of us, right? <laughs> and so then I'm like, how do I explain to my parents and to aunties and uncles that I got into the Harvard of theater and film schools? Right. It doesn't translate, right? You're like, what no. do you mean? You didn't get into Harvard. Harvard Not has them. a theater program. Not them. So. Right. Uh, right. so, so there were, there were those kinds of things too, uh, for me where, oh, sorry. So the point of it was, so it started with like, you can take a class. Then it started with, uh, okay, you can minor in it. Then it started with, oh, you got in. Okay. If you're majoring in it, then you have to double major in something else. Then it was like, at least get a minor in business. Then I graduated and it's like, at least go get your MBA. Then it was like, at least or real go estate to law license. school. Then it was real estate license. Right. Right. Uh, and then, I, you know, at least law school at least like, that's the right. big deal it's like at least we need to at least go to law school that's a whole <laughs> yeah that's a whole noble job in its own right dude uh, anyway you know it's it's funny and like you mentioned you know give away the ending of the book a little bit here but when i was fact checking all these stories with my parents i called them before one of my editing deadlines and i said hey just on a scale of one to ten how embarrassed were you when i was a kid right how embarrassed were you when aunties and uncles would go around the room asking the kids what they wanted to do and i was the only idiot who said he wanted to be an artist how did you feel how, how embarrassed were you scale of one to ten and they both said we don't know how you got that idea into your head we were never embarrassed we were scared because we never thought that somebody who was from our family or from our community could have a career in the arts. We just didn't know that that was even a career. Scary. Very yeah. scary. I can't imagine scary. moving. Ahead. I mean, why, why did it take me being in my late thirties, early forties to have that, what now seems like an obvious conversation with my parents, but there's that element of it too. So answering your question about like, do I have any advice for people? Not necessarily, but just consider all those options. Is this actually what you want to do? Or do you like the idea of it? Right. What's the opposition coming from in your parents' eyes? Is it, is it hatred? Probably not. It's probably something based in fear, fear. or something else, right? Yeah. I, but still, you need to give yourself credit, Cal, for being the 15-year-old, saying it to the aunties. I have those – we all have those aunties and uncles saying, I'm going to be in the arts because yeah. even going to law school was like, holy shit. Like, right. whoa, did you not make it? And by the way, fuck geometry. And <laughs> I hate both of them. I still have fucking nightmares from those two. When you said that, I was like – I wanted to hug you through the book. I was like, yeah. geometry. Like I have nightmares about my geometry teacher in particular. Like that, I don't. Yeah, no. mine was my Just physics not. teacher. She was not very good. But it also, it was so I don't know if if your fuck geometry comes from the same place. But um, I'm I am very fascinated by physics and science. So I was equally annoyed that I wasn't able to understand it. And to this day, I mean, my half my tattoos are astronomy related and physics related. It's like I love that shit. I just yeah. cannot comprehend and do the rote memorization in that way. In that way, that my ninety-year-old awful physics teacher, who I write about in the book, I also, also you know, while we're talking about this, I need to. Uh, how how is Math Baby doing? Is it a boy or girl? Uh, it, is, it, is it was twins? It was a boy twins. and a girl. Yeah. And how how old are they now? Yeah, they are uh, twenty-two. Yeah, they're twenty-two. 22. So for yeah. those that are listening, if you want to hear more about <laughs> Cal Penn has twin babies. Mm -hmm. uh, we call twin math I think, babies. Math, math babies. Yeah. Um, it's not really out online right now. You haven't really talked about the babies yeah. yet, but uh, the book has a lot about it. So, yeah. congrats. Pantu and Mantu are their Mantu. names. Oh, Pantu and Mantu. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Could you just have such uh, ridiculous uh, nicknames? So, so dumb. Just dumb. Yeah. Like, just yeah. ridiculous, but the best. I kind of wish I named my kids more <laughs> Guju. We, got, we, we thought we were too cool for it. Really quick about high school. Yeah. We hate math. You're understanding you're an artist. You're kind of feeling a little separated from your community. Yeah. Mississippi Masala comes out, yeah. changes your life yep. because it, it's amazing. Yes. And Denzel Washington is still in my dreams so, yeah. from that movie. Yep. Your first kiss uh, sounded horrendous. Oh, yeah, it was awful. Awful. I know. 
But I had my first kiss in high school too. Same kiss, different okay. person, yeah. I think. Yeah. And then before you got to UCLA, you did two interesting jobs. You did the telemarketer thing. Yeah, for a day. Which, uh, a lack of a better adjective, seemed icky Yeah, it was, a, it was scammy. Felt very scammy. And then you were a farmhand. Yeah, that was dope. I loved that job. So to me, and th- this is me being a little bit armchair experty. I love Dax Shepard. He's like my favorite. Dope, I know yeah. you were on the on that podcast. It felt like you went from an icky kind of like not honest job, yeah, to a the most honest, humble job. Ever. Sure. And I'm and and hold me uh, and wait for a second. So I'm like thinking, I'm like you know looking back at your book and thinking, and oh, like Cal has two different lives, Hollywood, DC. Two different totally atmospheres, environments, everything. Mm-hmm. So this kind of felt like that to me. Like it felt like this is the kind of the beginning of your dichotomy as a person, personality. You went from like a kind of like having to be political in a way mm-hmm. to like having just to be head down, hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yes. I, I think it's it's one other step too. I was talking to a friend about this this morning. He's he's a, a bit younger and launching this incredible design career as a as a fashion designer uh and he we were talking about odd jobs that we've had and my my belief i guess i i've never felt a stigma associated with uh the day job you know the like what do you what's your gig to save up money for headshots for gas to go to auditions to build up your resume there there's a long list of them i wrote about the the telemarketing and the farmhand job but there are so many more you know beyond that that i there are people who have a stigma associated with that. I don't understand those. I think if you're if you're keeping your head down, doing good work, that it's called, it's should be admired. Ego. ego. Yeah. I, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Maybe there's maybe that South, is South Asians that. sometimes have a problem with that. Everyone does. Sure. But. Everyone does. Yeah. Right. But no, I think that's right. I, I also tried to like. I mean, I was working at a farm stand all summer, like getting ripped, unloading crates. You are fruit, literally like, the only Gujarati so. brother I have I have heard of that would volunteer <laughs> to, to work fucking at a farm work stand. at a farm stand <laughs> outside. I was like, Jigga, what? I mean, it's like it's not like aunties <laughs> were coming for ringarn on the on the four o'clock hour. Why not? But I wish they were. I wish they were. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why your pussy auntie was not coming for ringarn because. If pussy I knew, didn't live in the neighborhood. She lived uh, a little farther away. Yeah. You mean? You and mean, should you we? Mean, t- should we talk about her? I mean, yeah, we should talk about her. How is she? What's going on with her? She's great. So, the, for for folks who have not yet read or listened to the audiobook, for anyone really, no matter what you're you're bi or multilingual in, some things uh, don't translate exactly, and then other things there are uh, letters that are switched or sounds that don't fully yeah. translate. So, in the case of of Gujarati, there are a number. Uh, there's a, a sub dialect, I guess, within Gujarati where the sh sound is pronounced as an S. So instead of mashed potatoes, some would, someone would say mashed potatoes. And so my parents had a friend named Bushpanti, um, and her nickname, because she was so sweet and docile and lovely, uh, her nickname was, was Pushy. So they would call her Pushy Auntie, right? Because she's anything but Pushy. The problem was that because some Gujaratis have that transference between those two letters, when she would come to visit, inevitably, some auntie would yell to us when we were down in the basement playing, kids, come quick, pussy auntie's here. And we would like laugh our asses off being like, oh my gosh, pussy auntie. By the auntie. way, Cal, it's still funny and I'm yeah. not 13. <laughs> this is Yo, so funny. it is funny today, okay? <laughs> it's funny and it's vulnerable it's just... and it's sweet and it's R-rated and sophomoric and all of the things. It's amazing. I stand by it. It's funny. 
it's and it's it's immigrant funny too, right? It's just ridiculous. It's a, and by uh, the way, everyone has a pushpa auntie. We yes, all need of course. the, so the pushpas. The the character of of pussy auntie in the book is actually a a, a composite of probably four or five different aunties. Okay. Uh, who I, I put a, as a composite as, as one because when I wrote the first draft, it was like, how do we keep track of these five aunties? And also it unfairly made it seem like these five aunties were ganging up on me. And I was like, no, 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 way too confusing for a book that's already a bit long. Right. So uh, let me let me redo. And so she's a she's a composite of these five incredible Wait, women. Who, did you make an ultimate auntie? Uh, I made the ultimate auntie. She's a real person, by the way. I, I just want to be clear. Uh, yeah. Pussy auntie does exist. But the, and and part of it, I hope by the end that that it was clear that it was also a hat tip to these these five yeah. women because the the things like aside from the ridiculousness of what we feel, it's also just the like, huh? I cannot imagine being what twenty five, twenty seven, coming to America halfway around the world. Like, right. but yeah, uh, Pussy Auntie was uh, was just a big part of the book. I hope you enjoy her. Oh my god! Like her, her name is all over my notes. I was like, "Can I? Let's meet her. Give me her headshot. I'll put it in the the, yeah. the promotions. We're promoting this thing." You so, Pussy um, Auntie, you're she's my auntie too, Cal. She's all like, our auntie. She, Pussy Auntie is your auntie too. That, yeah. Can we write a song? Pussy Auntie done. is your auntie too. <laughs> I already have it in my head. I can see it has I, to be done with puppets. Pussy. By the auntie way, I went to I went to DJ too. school in India when I moved there, so yeah, I can I can drop. Yeah, okay. I was like I got married and I have no how I have no job and I, yeah. I don't want to be a housewife, so I'm like right. let me go to DJ school. Great. So done. Beats Pussy Auntie. It's yeah. gonna happen. Let's let's make it happen. Awesome. Um, farmhand, you save money. UCLA. Now you're in California. Whole different side. I'm going to summarize it. Obviously, the book has a lot more, but you had your crew. You were focusing on acting. Yep. You had the parking situation. <laughs> and I'm going to say this wrong, the panoche. The panoche. panoche. No, that's right. Panoche. The panoche. I feel like the panoche is like a pussy auntie, the, the big character. Yes. In in, in the uh, in your life uh, that took you, that got you out of LA traffic, basically, and yes. got you to like- I borrowed a car. I basically auditions. shared, yeah, I shared a car right. with some friends, beat up old right. Dotson. And then your experience, I think, as the Indian Student Association and, and the Geetha and the Ravis. I know yeah. we don't care about them. I'm just kind of shocked that the Indians, even at UCLA, were like questioning your major or what you were doing. Even back then. You would think California, it wouldn't matter. It's a little yeah. bit more open, right? Yeah, I think, you know, but I think part of that's the, and thankfully it's been dismantled somewhat since I was in college, but the, this misnomer of the model minority, that that myth that we often just, electively forget that the only reason our parents were able to come to the United States is because immigration laws changed in 1965. And the right. reason that so many of them from that generation were doctors, engineers, pharmacists, etc., is because there was a labor shortage in the United States in those professions. So if your parents or grandparents got to come to America post-1965, it was probably to fill a labor shortage in that in those careers, which of course is not to say they didn't sacrifice. They of course did, right? My dad came to America with $8 in his pocket. And and it the, was 12 first, 12, right? It was 12. No, it was 12 right. after. He corrected me. It was actually $12. Oh, it was 12 after. Oh, okay. It was okay, $12. I thought it was eight. But Don't worry, uncle. So I got your that, back. Your son forgot. So I'm not saying that they didn't sacrifice. I'm just saying they had right. the opportunity to sacrifice, right? They had the opportunity to achieve the American dream. And we often pretend that that wasn't part of it and that there's something inherently in our DNA uh, that's exclusive to our DNA or exclusive to only our culture. And it's obviously a more complex factor than that. So Right. I, that's sort of what I was experiencing surprisingly from my peers at UCLA where I'm like, do y'all not know why uh, the community is made up of doctors and engineers? It's not because there's something inherent in you that has to do with your ethnicity. 
It's because of immigration patterns and all of those things. Of course, you're, you know, parents uh, try to encourage their kids to do what they know. So, yeah, it was surprising that that was that was part of the, yeah. part of the UCLA deal. Well, you know what? What's up, Keith and Rob? We love you anyways. We, it's fine. We love you. Right? Shanti. It's yeah. fine. It's all about Shanti. That's right. That's right. And then, you know, before you, you, you graduate, I love this because I feel like you're in some kind of simulation here. You end up getting connected with your crush's mom. Candace oh, Cameron. Yeah, yeah, what? yeah. yeah. What? How how is that not simulation or just like I don't know what what Gujarati word you want to use, but like that's amazing. Yeah, for years, uh, for for probably about three, I think this was about three years. Every Wednesday, would send out my headshot and resume to try to get an right. agent. And right. a lot of my peers in the theater department already had agents. It was pretty pretty easy to get, but I was not able to get one. A few uh, experience with a friend or two had uh, they, they had explained that their agents said, "Oh, he's a very good actor. We saw his tape, but uh, a guy who looks like him is never going to work in Hollywood." So I realized, oh my my barrier to entry is actually way higher. The glass ceiling is way lower, and it has to do with how I look, not with my merits. So I, I just got to keep at it. And this one woman finally called after I sent her my headshot and she said, I'd love to audition you for a representation. And she happened to be Candace and Kirk Cameron's mom, Barbara Cameron, this wonderful, sweet woman who ran a casting agency out of the back of her house. So I pull up. I I was not aware that I was going to a house. I pull up and I remember parking the car outside and just thinking to myself, like, oh, this is how people get tricked into doing porn. Yeah. This is literally how this, this is not legitimate. Well, I just figured I'd see what was up. <laughs> okay. uh, so I walk in and I see posters of Growing Pains and Full House. And I was like, okay, well, this does not look like porn. And I was like, wait, Barbara Cameron, Candace Cameron, Kirk Cameron. Oh, shit. This is so cool. Uh, and she, I auditioned for her. She was my first agent. She represented It's like Bhagavan was like, oh. It was nice. Right? It was nice. Yeah. That's was amazing. Cool. Okay. Let's get into the Brown Catch 22. Yeah. For those of you fools that have not read this book, which you need to immediately, can you explain what the Brown Catch 22, what you learned the Brown Catch 22 was at the yes. beginning of your career? Okay. The Brown Catch 22 that I, that I describe is as follows. So if this was, this is late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, and, and my standard disclaimer, every actor deals with getting typecast, no matter what you look like when you're first starting out. So just know that that's right. the reality. But the other part of it is that if you're a performer of color, you have this added layer of usually if you're not a performer of color, you're told, Oh, if you didn't get the part, it's because you're too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny. There's so many choices. You just weren't the right fit. If you're uh, a performer of color, you you're usually just too ethnic, at least back in the day. And so what ended up emerging was this trend where I'm like, I I'm only really allowed to audition for parts that are, um, that are written specifically South Asian. Um, in which case there were, always a stereotype and not many and not, not many, many. Right. And if right. you, and you don't want to necessarily, or I didn't necessarily want to play those parts because they just weren't challenging and they weren't interesting. They were also super reductionist. And then you kind of get in your head about like, well, the white boys never have to worry about whether something's a stereotype. They just want to, they just get to play the part. Even if it's a small part, I just want to play the part. I don't want this burden of having to think about this all the time. So the Brown catch 22 was basically, uh, unless you have credits on your resume, you can't get auditions for bigger and better roles. And the only right. way to get credits on your resume is by doing, I think it's Ajay Naidu calls it patanking, uh, putting <laughs> on like a, a, a stereotypical Indian accent because like white producers make it sound like the word patank or the sound patank. So yeah. he just like calls it patanking and that's a generation above mine, right? So to me, that was the brown catch 22 is like, how do you break out of it? And in my case, I, and plenty of people made the opposite choice and are, are doing just fine and props to them. But 
uh, my path was to take some of those roles and to build up uh, my resume and then break out of that with uh, with the resume builder, which in my case seemed to seem to work out. But don't you think you you were one of the first South Asians to do this? Don't you think you kind of had to break that mold first in I, order I, for these not not to be like these youngins owe you anything, but in a way, no. Oh, for sure. I I think th- look, those were the choices. It's funny you bring it up that way because you're right. I mean. There are uh, younger basic folks. They usually fall into two categories. Okay, either they oh, fall God. into the category of they actually love some of the stereotypical stuff. Right. And uh, I've had a couple of people. I, I, I had a, a small part in Hari Kondabolu's documentary, "The Problem with Apu," um, yeah. and I'm not a fan of Apu from what you know from the middle school chapters yeah. of of my book. But I also certainly didn't. I didn't think that like. Uh, I, I thought there were more solutions to how to uh, diversify a wonderful show like The Simpsons rather than to just get rid of one character. Like right. the issue there is obviously a stereotype and the fact that it's voiced by a white actor. But there are a lot of there are a lot of South Asians, a lot of Daisies who are like, "Man, fuck you! I saw you in Hari Kondabolu's documentary. You got a poo canceled." I'm like, all right, you, I think you watch a little too much Fox News. Yeah. Uh, but that's and not... also just have a drink, calm down. Have a drink, calm down. Like everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I certainly yeah, have no just... like. Hank yeah. Azari and I do, uh, we both voice different cartoons at the same studio. I see him every now and then. I think he's a wonderful guy. I have no beef with him. But there's like, th- that's one category of like brown young Daisy, right? The other right. brown young Daisy category are the, the, we'll call them kids. The folks who will come up and go, hey man, how many of your old roles do you regret doing, man? Oh like, God. Like four or five or more. Like, let me tell you something. I don't regret any of them. If your question is, do I wish I had a magic wand and a time machine and my first jobs could have been like jumping out of a plane with a parachute to save a bunch of innocent good guys? Yeah. I would love a Chris Evans role. Right. I'd love to be like a Chris Pratt in something, but that wasn't right. in the cards back in the day. I mean, you were a farmhand. You could do the Chris Hell yeah, Pratt I was a farmhand. I still, can. Yeah. I still can. But so I don't, you know, I, I certainly don't have any ill will towards either of those two right. groups of people. I actually welcome both of those conversations, because to me, that shows that there's progress, right? The first category of folks who are not bothered by something like Apu presumably aren't bothered by it because there's so much diversity of content that they can point to and say, but we also have this, 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 and this. That wasn't right. always the case. For that second right. group of folks, they take for granted that we've got the Mindy Kalings and the Priyankas and the like, the whole slew of Z's. And you, you know, like we folks. needed you guys to break. No, for break. sure. Just- but- so I'm so I'm so glad. To me, that's like that's a sign of a benchmark of progress, and I think it's wonderful. Yeah, and you had like that progress. You can't jump sk- steps here. Yeah. Like it has to go step by step, and you happen to be on one of the first steps, right? And so I appreciated the way you dealt with it. Like, thank you. I was shocked when I was reading. You know, Van Wilder. Obviously, we all love it. I still can't pronounce Baj Mahal's last name. Okay, Bardlandaman. Whatever. But we'll get to Barda Landabad. Barda, which means big, big Lund. Lund. Big Lund. Abad. Yeah, big big dick land. Abad. Yeah, basically. Okay, good job. I loved it. A fantastic movie, but two, I'm I love the way you explained why you took the role in the book. I think yeah. it's very important for people to read that and stop hating on your like whatever choices you or anyone else has made to fill that stereotype. Two, I was shocked to he- to read that brown face auditions were still happening. Yeah. yeah. Well, so what the for, fuck? first, number one, I don't feel any any hate. I think all these conversations are very welcome. I think they're right. They're great to have the brown the brown face piece that that still happens. The thing you're referring to again for for people who haven't read the book yet is uh, the the final callback audition for uh, Van Wilder, in which I play a character named Dodge Mahal. Uh, so, you know, you, it's the long duck dong of that generation and all of the complexities I outlined in more detail right. than we have than we have time for. Um, 
but I knew that it was going to be between me and another guy. And I didn't know who the other guy was going to be. And I was like, you know, there, there are the misnomer was there aren't that many brown actors, but there were enough that we sort of knew generally of each other. So I was like, which brother is it? Like, who else is going to be in the audition room? Also, like professionally trained, right? There's yeah, a lot yeah. of people like, yeah, but, like yeah, yeah. in no, your in, like in the yeah. industry kind yeah, of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And you, you know, you go in like you basically when you go to that stuff, you sort of think, obviously, I want to get the part and, and I am competitive in my own right. But um, but I'm also like super glad to see other folks from the community get their gigs. Right. I'm not competitive against other actors. So I walk in and I was just very surprised to see that the guy who I was up against was a white dude in brown face. And I remember just thinking like. So when did this happen? Like, did he, <laughs> You're like, did, it? did his agent tell him to do this? Did he decide to do it on his own? Did he paint his face before he left the apartment? Did he do it in the bathroom? Like, it was just an eye opening. But but to be fair, this still happens, right? The Aladdin movie that came out last year, the year before, there were there were all these reports about how uh, Disney had painted uh, background actors and stunt performers' faces brown. And then their their response when they got called out was, well, there just weren't enough qualified background performers or stunt performers. That's obviously a lie. And I, right. I no disrespect to Disney. The only reason I bring this up, and I, I've loved working with them and hopefully continue to, the only reason I bring it up is like, it's a company I fucking love. I just want them to do so much better. And they can. What that statement means is that whoever the line producer, whatever casting director was, they didn't invest enough of their budget in finding these people. It's not that right. they don't exist. It's that, yeah, you, you might have to look a little harder. A little harder. So if you're going to do a movie like that, you got to invest properly in making sure that you're doing it right. That's the only thing. And, so and that's it, why they need more people behind the scenes here doing that for kind sure, of work. Yeah. And then people like you that are writing about it in books, you know, like people don't talk about it. Yeah. Right? yeah. And it's changing and so like, a lot too. Like I, I don't want to yeah. make it seem like it's not, there's so many people doing the right thing, especially now compared to a while ago. Any part of you that ever wishes you started your acting career 10 years later? Uh, to make that, it a, this a, a is, quote unquote easier. This is one of those. This is one of those hypotheticals that I I can't answer without saying the same thing. Like, do I wish I had a time machine? Yeah, yes, I know, I know. Uh, but I'm also very thankful for for the opportunities I had, and I, I I can't honestly answer that question without saying there are at least two or more generations of South Asian actors whose names you might not know. Right. And who might never be household names, who are incredibly well-trained actors um, who are now, you know, they were maybe the the, the auntie-uncle generation or a step below, who's, to, to borrow another overused phrase, whose shoulders I am obviously standing on. And there's like two or three rungs of those shoulders that I'm standing on, right? So, totally. So like, I, and you give I'm them credit. You give them to, credit in the book. Yeah, I'm thankful do, to you, those you, you do do that. Yeah. Um, okay, so... In essence of time, because I want to get to, yeah. I definitely want to cover a few more things before I have to let you go. Sure. I'll yep. just keep on calling you back. Namesake yeah. happens. Yeah. Um, I, I know your breaking point seemed like it was your Australia trip. You mentioned that out in the book. And I'm, again, proud of you, even though I wasn't part of your life, that you were able to call it out as it Thank was. Yep. Nothing more to say about that than just amazingness. Thank and Thank I'm you. so glad you had the opportunity to come back around and work with one of your heroes, which Thank is you. again, yeah, a simulation, right? Yeah. <laughs> like amazing, you know, and then you start lecturing at UPenn, Superman returns, all these amazing things are happening. And then house, you become close to your dear friend, Olivia Wilde, and their next chapter of your life starts opening up a little bit. Yep. We heard of Obama. I think a few of us have heard of yep. him. You were part of the office of public engagement outreach team. 
I love the story about how you were hesitant and then you asked Obama about biofuels at the mm-hmm. first reception you went to. Mm-hmm. Maybe because you were making up of, for the lack of your science grades. I'm not even sure. Yeah. I just kind of loved it. I got to ask, does Obama have like a glowing light around him <laughs> when he walks? <laughs> because like, yeah, he feels like a reincarnation of Bhagawan sometimes. You know, it's funny that there's a there's a guy who I met who worked for President Bush, and he had worked for President Bush for a long time. This was after Obama was in office already. He goes, when you think of President Bush, do you think of just a dude who happens to be president, or do you think like, holy shit, that's the president of the United States? And I said, no, of course, I think, holy shit, that's the president of the United States. Right. And I go, when you think of Obama, do you, do you think that's a dude who happens to be president or holy shit, that's president of the United States. I was like, no, I think that's a dude who happens to be president. And he's like, see, that's the difference of having worked for somebody for so long before they were even considered a viable candidate versus only really knowing them once they stepped into a certain office, that the way you perceive that person or that entity is very different. So I totally understand what you're saying. And my experience, because at the time I joined the campaign, what, October of 2007, a lot of folks forget you know, Obama was down 30 points in the polls against Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. It was a very crowded presidential playing field. Um, it was a really small campaign. And so to right. see that kind of progress and grow was was very special. But you also get to see the behind the scenes of who the person is. Obviously, incredible leadership skills. What you see is what you get. He is incredibly smart, very funny, you know, from some very, of my self-deprecating stories. In the, oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it, and you know, obviously a good chunk of your book is about your time there, as it should be, yeah. uh, this this crazy important time in your life. One, you wrote a letter to yourself, right? Your 31-year-old yeah. self yeah. To, to remind her to kind of like, if you could tell yourself what you learned from those times. Yeah. Do you, st- you did mention a mini fridge twice. Yeah. You mentioned having a mini fridge at the White House and yeah. also at the, uh, in, in Iowa when you were yeah. uh, working in the caucuses. Do you still have that mini fridge? I, has that changed your life? I left the mini fridge at the White House when oh, I left the so White nice. House for my office mates and then realized that they probably left it for the next administration. And so then I was joking. I think it was like Sean Spicer or somebody was like removing their mini fridge when they left. So I'm like, of course, of course, you people are just taking with you. You're not even leaving for the next set of people, the goodwill of a cold salad. You're just taking yeah. it all with you. So I was joking. I mean, it was not my fridge, but I was joking like, I wonder if Sean Spicer stole my fridge. I, I think he has <laughs> it in his house right now. All right, Sean, get it back. Also, I love the fact that you were there when Obama wins the Iowa caucus. You yeah. remember exactly where you were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, these memories are just yeah. like life memories, right? Imprinted. Absolutely. Your parents got to got to go with you to these events. Yeah. I have to ask about the first of the volley in the White House. Yeah, dude. We are talking about South Asian. Oh um, the, the, the one thing I got to ask you, it's the amazingness. We've all read about it. I don't know when you're getting married. I think you are mm-hmm. you're planning your wedding around-ish. Uh, but I don't know if you're planning to do a Hindu or whatever kind of wedding. I had a Hindu wedding okay. with a, a, a Hindu priest. Yep. Uh, I know you've probably been to a ton of Indian weddings. The problem yeah. with Hindu priests, we all love them, but they tend to go on forever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did this priest do? Did did we have to like tell oh. him? <laughs> did we have to tell him during the, the Bali, the how, White House, the Bali thing? Like, let's 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 narrow, narrow it down a little. That's bit. very funny. We, uh, you know, everything's on. Anytime you uh, do anything with the president or any what they're called principal, so senior advisor or, or any elected official, cabinet member, their schedules, their their time is so important that everything is really planned down to the minute, uh, and sometimes the second. So we had to let the 
priests know, you know, you can't be up there for 87 minutes while Obama's just standing there <laughs> in front of the Arthi. You have to like, you know, we got to get this moving. Because the Arthi can be you know? two minutes or the Arthi can be 120. That's right. It just depends. That's right. That's right. right. No, so it was, it was succinct. I think what was, what was special about it also was that Diwali ceremony was part of the larger Asian American Heritage Month. Or no, it wasn't the Asian American Heritage Month celebration. It was the the signing of an executive order reestablishing a White House commission. And so, the, you know, this large umbrella that defines the Asian American Pacific Islander communities are made up of all these subgroups. And it was really nice to be so inclusive and have other folks at the event that might not traditionally get invited to the Valley event and vice versa. That's no, it's uh, it's amazing that like, the, the whole picture that you had in your book of, of that happening with, in front of George Washington. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. Um, the other question I had that you didn't clarify in your book: Did Obama? You gave Obama some advice to wear a tan suit for his. <laughs> that, was press- that was a joke. That was okay. a joke. That was so a that joke. never I happened. Okay, just no, making that sure. That was a joke. A lot of the footnotes are a hundred percent real, and then okay. a couple of them are just joking. Because I was like, "Did he wear tan or blue?" This is like <laughs> me at two o'clock in the morning. I'm like, "Does it tan?" I know it's tan or blue, and I'm like, "Am I ridiculous right now?" Um, I do want to say, look, in all seriousness, like you took care of shit there. Like you were a part. It's WAPI. Is it? We're calling yeah, it WAPI. Yeah. The first executive <laughs> yeah. order focusing on health and economic disparities for API, the biggest oil spill in U.S. history. You were working like with the, with the team on that. The two sick sick Americans being denied to serve in the military. Ooh. Haiti earthquake. The USO tour in South Korea, which I'm sure was amazing and, and very. I'm sure that has its own stories. Yeah. But you were there two years, right? You you did. You worked yeah. on the Pell Grants. Don't ask, don't tell. Affordable Care Act. I'm not saying you pass all of this, but yeah, you yeah. worked on all of this. Yeah. That's pretty, like, how do you feel? That's amazing. It was, you know, I, I was a small part of a very large team, and I'm not just saying that to be falsely humble. It's true. No, like you, uh, And it was incredible. Of course it was incredible. The, the idea that what, what it showed me also was, look, there was, I think there was a lot of media attention when I took this White House job because I went from being on a very public facing. I was on the TV show House. It was the number one show in the world at the time, number one drama. And to take a sabbatical from acting to go and work was something that people were like, oh, that's not a thing most people do. The reality, I think it kind of made you pimp, by the way. <laughs> thank you. The, yeah. the reality of it, though, was that uh, almost everyone else I was working with at the White House was also taking a sabbatical from their respective private sector careers. So whether they, you know, there was a pediatrician I worked with, there were people who worked at think tanks who were lawyers, who were economists. They were, they were also doing the exact same thing. And then furthermore, it wasn't just at the executive level. It was, this is how people get elected to school board and local city council and, and the PTA presidents. Like people give back in their own, their own ways. And it was very inspiring to see that. And then of course, being there for some of those, those big ticket items was, um, it made you realize the importance of making your voice heard and actually being in the room. Cause you realized that, and, and it helped to have a boss who wanted to hear if you disagreed with him. And that trickled right. down to the senior advisors and, and the bosses that we had where, you know, if you disagree with something that's happening privately, obviously, like, let us know why. What's your area of expertise and why do you feel that way? And so having that healthy dialogue was was also really helpful. I wish we would do more of that. God, I can't even imagine you haven't been in there, worked there, and then the change of administration and how that must have felt to you. I mean, that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. And I know we only have like two minutes left, so I will talk okay. fast. All right. All right. Fast. NASCAR yeah. and chill. I love that. Episode. I love that chapter. 
I'm into NASCAR now too. Yes. We can talk about that more. Okay. All right. uh, quick question. Yeah. Well, you have koozies at your wedding. Hell because yes. that's how, that's how you fell in love Definitely, with Josh. Yes. Okay. Awesome. Definitely koozies. And then you're back in LA. I just want to give a quick shout out because I'm in love with a Josh too. Oh, uh, Josh yes. Radner. Uh-huh. How I Met Your Mother was one of my favorite shows. Thank Loved you. That, every episode you did. And That whole um, cast is awesome. I have nothing but nice things to say. They're yes. Great. Amazing. Radner's amazing dude. DNC speech. Yeah. Quick answer. I'm going to assume from reading this, this was one of... This is like an apex of a collaboration, like between your two lives, right? Yeah. Like, I feel like, did it feel like the highlight of maybe both of your careers in one? Yeah, one sort moment? of. The The way I described the big re, the big thing that threw me that I outlined in the book was like, I had forgotten how to be funny because my job in the White House, they kept telling you, you know, the expectation was you're here to keep your head down and do good work, not to make jokes. And I did make like, I made a MILF joke on National Security Council email once. And I was like, oh my gosh, that was the worst idea ever. That was Nobody good. Laughed. Um, so yeah, it was definitely the combo of both worlds, but I had to like rediscover that aspect of storytelling. Well, it was really well received Thank and you. we all loved it. So just FYI. And then I'm going to skip the Bollywood part. Okay. I did love the teeny panty trip. It's oh, so thank you. The Bollywood There's story so in there is dope. I, I, I know. I, I, I know. love that. That's I know, but we have to bring up Sunnyside. Yeah. That's that's a big part of your yeah. your career, your chapter. Amazing that you, you got to make your own comedy, the most diverse cast, yeah. diverse writer's room. Do you feel like you made a dent doing that show in any way? Yeah, here's, uh, this is actually a great one to wrap up on. So the whole trajectory of Sunnyside, and especially for any of the nerdy folks listening who are curious how network television works versus streaming platforms, why is there so much more diversity now on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu than you've seen in the past? And why is it predominantly on streaming platforms instead of traditional networks? That'll answer a lot of your questions. Professionally and artistically, I'm so glad that I had that opportunity and I'm thankful to end NBC for giving us that opportunity. Obviously, it was a huge bummer how things shook out and the fact that the show was never given a chance, but it uh, helped launch a few careers. I mean, there were folks like Joel Kim Booster and Poppy Lou and Moses Storm who are incredible and on such a, uh, a precipitous rise right now. Just for me, knowing that it was possible to do that, to hire the most talented, diverse writers room in the history of Hollywood and make a show that and you had your own really parking proud spot. of. And I got, yo, right? I have my own <laughs> parking spot and my own trailer. Okay. All right. I swear, I swear, Bhagawan Kasam, yeah. last question. All right. And this is for the most important character in your whole book, yeah. besides you and your parents, Busiandi. Yes. You are taking a distance learning graduate certificate program, right? In international security at Stanford University. Yes. Did you finish that? Yes. So Busiandi needs to know that you finished that. Busiandi. I finished it. I finished it. That's what she said. (laughs) Well done. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that interview. Like I mentioned, there was just so much more to talk about and I'm hoping I can grab him for a part two sometime this year. Until then, we are doing a book giveaway for his memoir, You Can't Be Serious. It's super easy. All you have to do is subscribe to the podcast, which I think you are because you're listening to me. Two, rate and review the podcast on Apple. Super easy. And then three, tell me your favorite part about the interview and or the book. You can do that by mentioning it on Instagram at Tucker.podcast. You can either DM me. You can also email me through the website, tuckerdotwithummy.com. And uh, yeah, give me your feedback. Let me know what you thought about the interview because 
I sure had a fun time. I hope you guys did too. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. I am still in the process of my big move to Texas. I'm almost there. And we'll have brand new episodes coming to you this August. Thank you guys for listening and watch out for the giveaway this week. This is Tuckered Out. Out.